Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In this episode, we finish the section of Matthew called by some the Little Apocalypse and by others the Olivet Discourse. This section begins with a parable that, like most of the parables since the latter part of chapter 18, tells a story that reflects the brutal realities of oppression in the world that the audience of this gospel lives in and knows all too well. But this will be the last such parable, because it will fulfill, as it were, all of the previous such parables by including a sort of messianic figure who will pay for doing the right thing with his life. Having brought these reality-exposing parables to an end, Jesus will then tell a more straightforward story about the coming of the Son of Man. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 61 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. So let's begin with Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own, with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Again, Jesus spins a parable that reflects real-life power dynamics. The actual surface story of the parable involves a whole scenario, including a master with slaves, the accumulation of exorbitant wealth, and the punishment of a disobedient slave, all things that run counter to what Jesus has been teaching. For these and other reasons, this parable at surface level would seem to offend peasant sensibilities as well as the sensibilities of anyone loyal to the traditions of Israel. This parable seems to be all-around offensive, unless, that is, we have eyes to see and ears to hear who the hero of the story actually is. Finally, in this parable, unlike the other parables in the latter part of Matthew that have used the technique of brutal honesty about how the world works, finally, in this parable, we actually have a hero, someone who does the right thing. The other parables of this sort did not have heroes. This one has a hero. It's just not who most modern readers think it is. Most modern readers assume that the first two slaves, the ones who obey their master and double his money for him, are the exemplary ones. And of course, that is what makes sense in modern capitalist culture, where we are encouraged to continually increase our wealth and where traders, business people, are seen not just as normal, but even superior, the ideal citizens, the job makers, and so forth. But there is a very good argument that the hero in this parable is actually the third slave, the one who resists doing the bidding of his master. Let's start by how the actual surface story of this parable would offend peasant sensibilities. Here's how Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh, two New Testament scholars who specialize in analyzing biblical texts through the lens of social science, comment on this parable. Two slaves trade up their master's holdings, doubling the amount. They are clever slaves, behaving as slaves should. In the limited good world of the first century Mediterranean, however, seeking more was morally wrong. An increase in the share of one person automatically meant a loss for someone else. Honorable people, therefore, did not try to get more, and those who did were automatically considered thieves. Noblemen avoided such accusations of getting rich at the expense of others by having their affairs handled by slaves. Such behavior could be condoned in slaves, since slaves were without honor anyway. The third slave buries his master's money, to assure that it remained intact. This was, of course, the honorable thing for a free man to do. Was it honorable behavior for a slave? Later rabbinic customary law provided that since burying a pledge or a deposit was the safest way to care for someone else's money, if a loss occurred, the one burying the money had no responsibility. When the day of accounting arrives, we find the master rewarding those who were vicious enough, shameless enough, to increase his wealth for him at the expense of so many others. These slaves, in fact, are just like their master. For we find out from the third slave, and the master agrees, that the master himself is quite rapacious and shameless, a hard man, reaping where he did not sow, and gathering where he did not scatter seed. From the peasant point of view, therefore, it was the third slave who acted honorably. That's from Social Science Commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, 
by Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrball. The Master in the parable declares, To all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Molina and Rohrball refer to that as a peasant truism. A peasant truism that means the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. A truism we are all familiar with in our contemporary, shameless, capitalist societies. So that's the cultural lens from a first-century Mediterranean peasant perspective. But anyone loyal to the Torah and prophets would also view the third slave as the honorable one. The two slaves who obeyed their master doubled his money through trade. Traders are regularly portrayed in the prophets as evil. And charging interest, which is what the master told the third slave is the least that he could have done, charging interest is forbidden in Torah. Of course, the Torah actually forbids Israelites from charging interest to other Israelites. It allows charging interest to foreigners. That the hero in the story refuses to do even that makes him a hero to all peasants, regardless of nationality. As we have seen, this gospel teaches transnational peasant solidarity. And we can conclude that the third peasant is the hero, not just because that would be the perspective of those in the original audience who were peasants and or loyal to the traditions of Israel, but also because he is the one who stays true to Jesus' teaching. Jesus has taught against the accumulation of wealth. Do not store up riches on earth. And he has taught his people not to recognize hierarchical authority. Call no one on earth father. By resisting the orders of his master, who is not only a master, but is also revealed to be hard and rapacious, he is following the teaching of Jesus. And like Jesus at the climax of the larger story in Matthew, when he is taken out of the city to be crucified, the third slave will be cast into the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing teeth is what the Sanhedrin does right before they stone Stephen in the seventh chapter of Acts, so it seems to be behavior exhibited by those who execute the martyrs. The third slave, then, is the one faithful to the teaching of the new society, who in the footsteps of Jesus becomes a martyr in this very clever parable. And this parable culminates the series of parables in the latter part of Matthew that lay bare the brutal reality of the real world. But in this case, there is an actual, if tragic, hero, one who actually does the right thing. None of the other parables had a hero. Now that such a hero has arrived, these parables come to an end. This parable of the talents is also the penultimate passage in the Little Apocalypse, or Olivet Discourse, that has been the focus of this and the last two episodes. Its purpose is to warn its hearers to stay awake. Its purpose is to warn its hearers to stay awake for the coming of the Son of Man. It's easy to forget that because this parable does not contain the actual admonition to stay awake, nor does it actually mention the coming of the Son of Man. 
Instead, it gives an illustration of how to resist the oppressive power structures of this present age, the power structures of the old society, because that is what staying awake looks like. And this sort of staying awake is further spelled out in the next passage, which not only explicitly mentions, but actually gives a description of the coming of the Son of Man. Let's read verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep at His right hand, and the goats at the left. Then the King will say to those at His right hand, Come, you that are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer him, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who were members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. While the picture that Jesus paints here is often referred to as a parable, it isn't a parable in the same way that the others are, and scholars even debate as to whether it should be categorized as one. While Jesus uses the simile of separating sheep and goats, and then that simile, the imagery in that simile, morphs into a metaphor in one sentence, there is otherwise no obvious metaphorical language in this passage. It is a straightforward image of the judgment at the coming of the Son of Man. So while we might not want to take this image as a strictly literal description of the judgment, it is not metaphor either. It describes what the judgment may actually be like. Unlike all the parables that have preceded it, it is an image that attempts to describe the coming of the Son of Man. The parables that told stories reflecting real-world cruelty to make a point about the kingdom of heaven or God's new society have come to an end. This parable or story image is straightforward, and it is crafted to make a point. After a long discourse on keeping watch or staying awake for the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus finally gives his audience a picture of what the coming of the Son of Man looks like and who will be rewarded for having stayed awake. It turns out that the people who stayed awake 
were not those who constantly talked about the coming of the Son of Man, those who tried to guess the date, who put out tracks about it to scare people with the fear they might get left behind, but rather those who fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, took care of the sick, and visited those in prison. That's what staying awake looks like. This image of a grand judgment of the nations was a common one in the prophetic and apocalyptic literature of ancient Israel. Joel, Daniel, 1st Enoch, 4th Ezra, and 2nd Baruch all have these sorts of images. As much as I would like to read all of them here and discuss them, I think that would wear us all out. So I'll read one of them so that you can get the flavor. Joel 3, 1-3 reads, For then in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, they have divided my land and cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes, and sold girls for wine, and drunk it down. Notice the similarities and differences. The similarities are, 1. It's a judgment scene. 2. The nations are gathered. In other texts, it's the kings who rule over the earth, or the major empires that are gathered. But in this one, it's the nations, just as in Matthew 25. Number 3. There's an emphasis on justice. The differences are, one, although there's an emphasis on justice, within that emphasis, the emphasis is on judgment. There is little talk of those who are saved in these passages, partly because of the second difference. Number two, the saved or rescued party is Israel. The scenes of the great judgment in the other ancient Israelite texts tend to be about judging the nations that have oppressed Israel. Although the later in time the texts are written, the more the nationalistic emphasis seems to wane. Jesus, on the other hand, calls the nations together, and some of them are saved, not just Israel. The nationalist dimension seems to have disappeared in Matthew 25. And number three, while the king or son of man gathers the nations, the judgment is not only on collective nations but also applies to individuals. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, and caring for the sick are all things that a nation might or might not have done and could therefore be judged for. But visiting those in prison makes no sense for a nation. Only an individual or perhaps a small group of people could do that. So Jesus' image of the judgment seems to have an individual dimension. Although we shouldn't lose sight of the collective dimension, he does originally call the nations together. Although Jesus is portrayed in Matthew as Israel's Messiah, a champion of Torah, he is also portrayed as taking his movement beyond Israel to create a transnational movement for a new society. This image of the judgment at the coming of the Son of Man reflects that. Warren Carter notes that the actions taken 
feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, and visiting those in prison are all things that cannot be reciprocated by the beneficiary of these actions. At the immediate level, that is true. A hungry person can receive food, but cannot immediately and may never be able to reciprocate. On the other hand, what Jesus may be describing here is investing in a community of mutual aid. In episode 12, we looked at Jesus' teaching to not store up riches on earth, but rather to store up riches in heaven. By looking at the background of this teaching in Tobit, Sirach, and Rabbinic sources, we found that storing up riches in heaven meant giving to those in need so that when you are in need, others will help you. In other words, creating a network and culture of mutual aid. For example, Tobit 4, 6-11 states, To all those who practice justice, give to the poor from your possessions, and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you do it. Do not turn your face away from anyone who is poor, and the face of God will not be turned away from you. If you have many possessions, make your gift from them in proportion. If few, do not be afraid to give according to the little you have. So you will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. For giving to the poor delivers from death and keeps you from going into the darkness. Indeed, giving to the poor for all who practice it is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. Sirach 29, 8-13 reads, Nevertheless, be patient with a man in humble circumstances, and do not make him wait for your aid. Help a poor man for the commandment's sake, and because of his need, do not send him away empty. Lose your silver for the sake of a brother or a friend, and do not let it rust under a stone and be lost. Lay up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. Store up gifts to the poor in your treasury, and it will rescue you from all affliction. More than a mighty shield, more than a heavy spear, it will fight on your behalf against your enemy. So when Jesus counsels his people to store up treasure in heaven, he means give it to those in need, to the poor, to brothers and sisters who don't have enough, so that you will receive aid in your time of need. In other words, mutual aid, the common good, a community of people willing to help each other get through the hard times. That is the heavenly treasure. Here in Matthew 25, Jesus is saying the same thing. When people fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, took care of the sick, and visited those in prison, they were doing it to him. They were laying up treasure in heaven. They were establishing a network and culture of mutual aid. But people who live this way do it by faith, not expecting anything in return, and they even forget that they have done it, not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing. But in the judgment, they will be reminded of what they have done. And so ends the little apocalypse, in which Jesus has warned his people to stay awake for the coming of the Son of Man, showing them what that looks like, what staying awake looks like, and what the coming of the Son of Man looks like. He has described the future judgment that will occur at the coming of the Son of Man. And all along, we have seen literary clues 
that the coming of the Son of Man begins at the cross. So does the judgment then also begin at the cross. Having just been given a description of the judgment that occurs at the coming of the Son of Man, we now enter the final section of Matthew, the Passion Narrative, where Jesus will go before the judgment of the powers in Jerusalem. But nothing is as it seems. It will look as if Jesus is being judged and condemned. But those with eyes to see and ears to hear will perceive a higher judgment taking place. That all starts in the next episode. For now, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode was provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about the podcast and give us glowing reviews and ratings that will draw people to the podcast. You can leave comments and questions at subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 61 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.